Amen. Would you bow your heads together with me in prayer? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that by the power of your Holy Spirit, God, that light has shone into our dark hearts so that we can see Jesus and declare, Jesus, you are, you are the Holy Son of God. Lord, if there's anyone here who has not yet come to that realization, God, I pray that you would speak to them by the power of your word right now. And God, we ask that we would um, hear your voice speaking through your living and active word. God, we thank you for the opportunity to gather in your name. We've sung your praise. We've lifted our voices. Now we want to hear your voice. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to John chapter 7. If you're uh, visiting with us or don't own a Bible, or ushers are coming up and down the aisle right now to either lend you a Bible or to give you a Bible. This is our gift to you if you don't uh, own a copy of God's Word. You know, there's a lot of different opinions out there about who Jesus is. If you wanted to learn about Jesus of Nazareth, if you wanted to gain an understanding of who he is and what he was about... If you went on to Amazon or you went over to Chapters and decided to pick up some books, you know, you'd see a variety of opinions. Deepak Chopra has written a number of books about Jesus. He's a medical doctor. He's also sort of a leader in the New Age mystical movement. And this is what he has to say. Here's his opinion of Jesus. Not the Savior. Not the one and only Son of God. Rather, Jesus embodied the highest level of enlightenment. He spent his brief adult life describing it, teaching it, and passing it on to future generations. Jesus intended to save the world by showing others the path to God consciousness. He's a New York Times bestseller in the religion section Under the theme of Jesus Christ or Christology or Christianity. Also a a bestseller would be someone like Reza Aslan. Who's not coming at it from the the mystical spirituality perspective. But as a a journalist and as a scholar, a CNN correspondent, a a, a TV broadcast, a host. He wrote a book about Jesus and here's what he concluded. I wouldn't call myself a Christian because I do not believe that Jesus is God. Nor do I believe that he ever thought he was God or that he ever said he was God. And then getting even a little closer to home, what about Franciscan friar Richard Rohr, whose book right now on Amazon is the number one bestseller under the theme of Christianity. This is what he has to say. He's a a monk in Albuquerque, New Mexico and has quite, quite the following. He says... All people must learn to draw from their own implanted spirit, which is the only thing that will help them in the long run anyway. Jesus gives them the courage to trust their own inner Christ and not just its outer manifestation in himself. There's a lot of different opinions about who Jesus is, about what Jesus claimed to say about himself, the, the, the religions, 
that are represented in our nation, from, from Hinduism to, to Islam, even, even uh, different cults that would call themselves Christians like Jehovah's Witnesses. There's all of these varying differences about who Jesus, Jesus is an angel or Jesus is a, is, a, is a prophet. There's all kinds of opinions. Here's the really odd thing about Jesus of Nazareth. Everyone feels like they need to have an opinion about him. All the religions include him. Have you noticed that Jesus is a part of every world religion? There's no other religious leader like that. Muslims don't say anything about Buddha. Buddhists don't say anything about Muhammad. Yet every world religion has an opinion about Jesus, includes Jesus into their overall framework or structure. Here's the other weird thing about Jesus. Is people are just allowed to say whatever they want about him. He's a historical figure. We don't do this with Julius Caesar. I don't really think he was the emperor of Rome. I, I don't think he led them across the Rubicon. I, I don't, we don't do that with Julius Caesar. We don't do that with Martin Luther King Jr. We, we, we take seriously the historical documents about these historical figures, and we take very seriously the words that these figures actually spoke, right? And so wouldn't it be wise for us in considering who Jesus is to actually look at the historical documents related to his life? Wouldn't it be wise to actually look at his very words? We've heard a, a lot of opinions about what people think about Jesus. Well, what does Jesus think about Jesus? And so in John chapter 7 today, if you're taking notes, you can just jot this uh, at the top because a similar thing is happening when we get to John 7. We're about a third away into this book, this historical, spiritual, really biography of Jesus' life. And jot just this down. What people say about Jesus. What people say about Jesus. Now, we've been out of the Gospel of John for the last few weeks because uh, Pastor Ray Kaprowski was here visiting, and then we had the, um, the commissioning of Hope Church Toronto uh, North. And so just to kind of restate the context here of John chapter 7, people are beginning to see what Jesus is doing and hear what he's saying, and they're beginning to formulate opinions. So if you look back at John chapter 7, verse 33, 32, it says, the Pharisees, who were the religious leaders, they heard the crowd muttering these things, these different opinions. They, they heard the people muttering these things, and it says about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. They're like, you know what, enough is enough. We, 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 need, we need to stop this. We need, to, we need to, to get this guy arrested. So they sent some officers to go and arrest him. Now, they show up and the crowd is there. It's the Feast of Booths. This big Jewish religious festival is taking place. And that's, that's the context in which Jesus shared those words that we studied at Easter. Where he said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So, that's the context. That's the background. They, these people were sent to arrest Jesus. Jesus said this statement about rivers of living water. This statement about believing in him. Now let's pick up the story in chapter 7, verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Spirit said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where, where David was? So there was division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid 
hands on him. And so there's the, there are all of these opinions. You got one group of people who are saying that could this be the prophet? This was a question that was raised back in chapter 6 when Jesus had fed all the thousands of people. It seemed like, like how God provided manna in the past. And Moses was the leader of the people back then. And Moses promised in Deuteronomy chapter 18 that a prophet like Moses was coming. So people associated Moses with bread. And they saw Jesus provide bread. And they thought, well, this must be the prophet. Other people said, no, 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 he's not the prophet, he's the Christ. The, 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 the truth is, Jesus is both of those things. He is the prophet and he is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. That's what Christ means. And the, the, the thinking at the time was that the prophet and the Christ were two different people, but they were one and the same in Jesus. But there was all of this different opinion. And there was this third group of people saying, he can't be the Christ because he's from Galilee and the Christ is supposed to come from Bethlehem. These were the scholarly people. They're looking at the evidence. And they knew that in the book of Micah, it was, it was prophesied, it was predicted, it was promised that, that this great king, this Messiah, this Christ was going to come from Bethlehem. But there's a misunderstanding of, you know, where you're born and where you come from, Right? If you ask me, hey, where are you from? I would say, I'm from Brampton. But the truth is, I was born in Hamilton. What, what, represent? <laughs> so when, when you say, well, where's someone from? Now, again, the assumption back then, because people hardly ever moved or even journeyed very far away from where they were born, People thought, well, Jesus, his home is in Galilee. His parents are in Galilee. His brothers and sisters are up in Galilee. He must have been born in Galilee, but he wasn't. Remember, God orchestrated the whole thing. The census, which led them down to Bethlehem, and then Herod's paranoia, which led them to Egypt, and then back up to Galilee. He's from Galilee, but really, he's from Bethlehem. And there was a misunderstanding. People thought that Jesus was disqualified from being the Messiah because he didn't fit the criteria, but he actually did. So there's this division. Some people wanted to arrest him. Some people were even sent to arrest him. Let, let's find out what happens with them. Verse 45. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? You had one job. Go and find Jesus. Find a big crowd and you'll find at the center, it, center of that crowd will be Jesus. Go lay hands on him and bring him to us. Why don't you have him? And I love what they respond in verse 46. The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. No one, they, they, they heard what Jesus said. They heard what Jesus said. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Other people have said in the past, if anyone thirsts, I will show you where to go to drink. No one's ever said, come to me and drink. Jesus said, you need to believe in me. Other people in the past have said, you need to believe in God. But here is, here is a man saying, believe in me. There's like, no one ever spoke like this man. And the reason why no one ever spoke like this man is because Jesus was not just a man. Then the Pharisees answered them, verse 47, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. 
the Pharisees are beginning to feel a little bit insecure. Whenever people who are in positions of authority, whether it be academic authority or social influence authority or political authority, whenever they begin to feel threatened, you start to see them start to dig in their heels. We're the ones who you should be listening to. Not the crowds. They call the crowds accursed. These are the, these are the chosen people of God. These, this is the nation of Israel. And they're separating themselves, elevating themselves up above them, saying, they're all accursed. We're the ones who people should be listening to. Because they begin to feel threatened. And they say, listen, all of the authorities believe this. All but Nicodemus, verse 50. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them. So it's not true that all of the authorities have discounted Jesus. He's saying what I what really I'm trying to say. Look at what he says. Nicodemus, who had gone um, to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? Nicodemus is saying, listen, enough of our opinions, enough of the crowd's opinions. Shouldn't we actually just reason with Jesus and hear what he has to say? Because Nicodemus had done that in John chapter 3. But then look at what happens. They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. They, they actually uh, insult Nicodemus here. Galilee was thought to be this sort of uneducated, unsophisticated, backwards, redneck kind of a place. No one of any significance or intelligence comes out of that place. And so they're insulting Nicodemus. What, are you a Galilean? And that was, that was the cultural view at the time. Remember when Peter was hanging out when Jesus was on trial? And he's trying to warm himself by the fire and he's kind of chit-chatting with people, trying to blend in. He doesn't blend in. Why? Because he had an accent. Galileans talked funny. And, and they were kind of ridiculed for that. They were known as being unsophisticated and uneducated. And that's what they're saying to Nicodemus, who was one of them. It's another thing that we see happening in our world. That when people who are in authority begin to feel threatened, first they assert their authority. All of us agree. Every scientist believes this. Every philosopher believes this. Every right-minded, logical person believes this. Starts with asserting the authority, and when that doesn't work, you just start flat out insulting people. Why is Richard Dawkins so rude? Why? He feels threatened. He feels threatened by people who are intelligent, by people who have weighed the evidence and just don't buy that evolutionary biology is the way of explaining the universe. And so he spews all this vitriol at them. He tried asserting his authority. He tries all the scientists agree, but all the scientists don't agree. Dig in their heels, and then they just start lashing out and insulting people. That's exactly what happens here. See, this is an amazing thing about the Bible. It's like the times have changed, but people haven't changed. We're, 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 still, we're still the same. Now, the next section here, before, before chapter 8, in my Bible, I've got this statement here in, in, uh, in square brackets that says, the earliest manuscripts do not include 
John 7.53 to John 8 verse 11. And then if you look at the next section there, there's probably square brackets around it. Some of you might not even have those verses in your Bible. Others of you might have those verses as a, a footnote. Now, why is that the case? Well, first of all, what does it mean when it says a manuscript? Script means write. Manu means like manual. You do it by hand. So when we talk about manuscripts, we talk about handwritten copies of the Gospel of John. When translators translated the English Standard Version, which I have right here, they, they referenced and referred to and checked handwritten copies of the Gospel of John that John actually wrote. So that's the, those are the manuscripts. Now before the manuscript, there was an autograph. Graph, again, also means write. Auto means self. When you get someone's autograph, when you meet a celebrity or a sports star, right, you don't just meet them and then write their name out yourself. You ask them to write out their name, to sort of say, I met this person, here's their autograph, it's their own handwriting. Now, we believe in the inspiration of the Word of God. By that we mean that as John was writing, he's really not the only author of the Gospel of John. We believe that the Holy Spirit carried John along to write these very words. And we believe that inspiration happened in the authoring of the autographs. And we believe that God's Word is inerrant and perfect and living and active in the original autographs. So we believe that when John, in his own handwriting, wrote out this gospel, and when he was done with it, it was perfect, it was inerrant, it was without error. And then it was copied and copied and copied and copied. Now, we do believe that the autographs are inspired. We do not believe that the copies are inspired. We also don't have any autographs. We don't have the Gospel of John in his original handwriting. We don't have the book of Genesis in Moses' original handwriting. We don't have any autographs. We have manuscripts. But can we trust? How, how can we trust that the manuscripts that we have actually say what the autographs said? Well, here's the amazing thing. That as God's word was going out, it was, it was being translated and it was being copied in all of these different directions to nations in the north and to the south and to the east and to the west. And as you compare these copies, it's remarkable. I mean, these copyists, I can't even write down a grocery list and get it right. But the amount, the margin of error is so, so tiny. And so why is it that some Bibles have John 8, 1 to 11 and other Bibles don't have? Well, here... Just take a look at this chart. So Jesus lived about A.D. 33. That's when his death, burial, resurrection took place. The King James Bible was originally translated into English in 1611. The ESV Bible that I have in my hand was translated in 2001. Now when the scholars were translating from Greek into English, the King James Bible, this is what they had access to. They had access to 25 Greek manuscripts. 25 handwritten copies. They had a Latin translation and some other things, but as far as manuscripts go, they had access to 25. The oldest one that they had was from 800 AD. So almost 800 years since John actually wrote it. 
Now, fast forward to 2001 when the ESV translators were translating the Bible in 2001 because you've got four centuries of archaeological discovery. You've got now access to over 5,000 Greek manuscripts. And the oldest manuscript, the oldest handwritten copy, goes all the way back to 120 A.D. And so what happens is you start comparing the handwritten copies. Now, listen, if there were only two copies, we couldn't know for sure. What's the, what, what's the real one? And so even though we don't have the autograph, I mean, you compare these copies, there's so much overlap. We can tell. We, we have... We have certainty what John actually wrote. But here's the kicker. As we study the manuscripts and compare them, John 8, 1 to 11 doesn't show up in any manuscript until about 400 A.D. It just skips. Again, the chapters and the verses weren't in the Bible until much, much later. But it just skips from the end of John 7 right to John 8, 12. Furthermore, when it does appear, even when it appears very early, it appears in 10 different places. Sometimes at the end of the Gospel of John, sometimes it's in the Gospel of Luke, it appears all over the place. Another thing to note is that when it does appear, it, it's written with a Greek version of an asterisk. You know, we put an asterisk, like a like special note, or there's an exception, or something I want you to know, that when it is included, there's, uh, there's an asterisk. Also, John 8, 1 to 11, doesn't fit John's writing style. It doesn't use the same kind of words, the same kind of a language, the same kind of sentence structure. Also, not only do we have ancient manuscripts, we also have sermons, copies of sermons that were, uh, that were preached. We also have ancient commentaries that were written. If you look at someone's sermon series, if you look at someone's commentary set, it just skipped over this passage. It wasn't there in those early uh, centuries. And also, it disrupts the flow of the story. Now, some of you are thinking, well... I know John 8, 1 to 11. This is one of my favorite stories. This is, this is the woman who's supposedly caught in adultery and everyone's ready to throw stones at him and then Jesus like dramatically like gets down and draws in the sand and then just matter-of-factly says, you know, who's ever without sin, drop the first stone and then you start to hear thud, thud, thud and the, the stones drop. It begins with the older ones and, and they eventually all walk away and then Jesus says, where's everyone who's going to condemn you? And then she says, they've all left. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. And we love that story. I love that story. And listen, chances are that story is actually historical, even though it's not canonical. It probably did actually happen. What, what we're talking about is not whether or not this event happened. What we're talking about is did John write it originally in his version of the Gospel of John? And the historical evidence says no. Around the year 400, someone decided to add it in. Someone thought that this would be a good time to retell this particular story. And so I'm, I'm not going to preach on John chapter 8, 1 to 11. Listen, and no one's more sad than I am. 
To be totally honest, I got, I got a picture. I got a bunch of men up here with stones and dropping it on the ground. Get them stand up here on the platform. I mean, this, if any passage preaches, it's that passage. But we want to be faithful. And, and, and listen, my calling is to preach the inerrant, living, and active word of God. And, and, and to preach the gospel of John. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, but, but I mean, I, I love the fact that the, the, this passage teaches us that, you know, we shouldn't judge other people. Well, listen, this isn't the only passage that teaches us that. Jesus did tell those guys to drop their rocks, but he also told all of us to take the plank out of our eye before we go for the speck in someone else's eye. I mean, what, but it also shows that Jesus accepts and loves people even if they've sinned. Well, listen, we, we have so many places that show that Jesus is the friend of sinners. And so we can, we can still celebrate the truths behind this story without treating that story as though it were part of God's word. Is everyone clear? So we're moving to John chapter 8 and verse 12. It says, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So enough about what people say about Jesus. Now, what does Jesus say about Jesus? He says, I am the light of the world. So the second point uh, that I'd like you to jot down today is what does Jesus say about Jesus? And the first thing he says is, I am the light of the world. Now I mentioned how if we were to include John 8, 1 to 11, it would disrupt the flow. Look at the, look at the last word in John 7, 52. Do you see it there? It's the name of a place. What is it? Say it to me. Galilee. Okay, so... The last word that's spoken in John 7.52 is this assertion. No prophet comes from Galilee. And then Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Now, the, this theme of light shows up everywhere. It's in John chapter 1. It's in Genesis chapter 1. You can't live without light. Light's this incredible thing. We can't live without it, but too much of it kills us, right? We need the sun to live, but if you look at the sun, you're not going to be able to be looking much longer. If we get too close to the sun, too much light, but we need it to live. We need light in some sort of mediated fashion in order to survive. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He has come to give us life. And there's a lot of parallels because there's so much that the Bible says about light. Jesus here is tapping into so many Old Testament prophecies. One of them, notably, which we talk about a lot at Christmas and Isaiah 9 verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. And here's the amazing thing, the context. When, when in Isaiah 9 when it says the people who walked in darkness, what people? Notice that's Isaiah 9 2. What's Isaiah 9 1 say? It talks about the land beyond the Jordan. Galilee. Of the nations. The verse before that says it's a place of gloom and deep darkness. And then it says, Those who dwell in darkness, those who live in Galilee, have seen a great light. What's on the Pharisees' mind? Well, he's from Galilee. Can anything good come out of Galilee? Yeah, something good can come out of Galilee. The light, the light that was promised in Isaiah 9 
two. Do you see how it flows together? And so they were talking about Galilee. Isaiah was talking about Galilee. This is the place where the light has Sean, Jesus is more than just a prophet. Jesus is the light, not just of Galilee, but of the whole world. Verse 13. So the Pharisees said to him, you're bearing witness about yourself and your testimony is not true. So they're saying, you, you can't just say that about yourself. We, 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 we won't believe that about you. Jesus said, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from. And I know where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. Not only are they ignorant about Bethlehem, they're also ignorant about the fact that he's come from heaven. He says, you judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. Now some people who who like to have their own opinions about Jesus love that statement, I judge no one. See, Jesus is a pluralist. He just says, go live your life however you want. I just love everybody and I, I, everyone gets to heaven and I'm not here to judge. I judge no one. Well, look at the context of what he's saying. He's saying, you judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. I judge no one in the way that you judge, which is according to the flesh. Jesus judges on a deeper level, especially look at the next verse, verse 16. Even if I do judge, my judgment is true. He's saying that he is a judge. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. Jesus is saying, God the Father is the one who is bearing witness about you. You want another witness? If you're not just going to take my word for it, then take the Father's word. Back in John 5, Jesus listed all of these witnesses, John the Baptist and his miracles and his words and the Father and the Old Testament scriptures were all witnesses. And so Jesus is back into talking about that. Verse 19, they said to him, therefore, where's your father? And they they said that because they didn't know that Jesus was saying that God was his father. That's going to become clear as the gospel story unfolds. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Jesus' father is God and Jesus is God. If they don't know Jesus, then they don't know God. Verse 20, these words he spoke in the treasury as, they, as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. This happened in the, in the treasury. This is where Jesus makes his second of seven I am statements. Um, these are the I am statements that, that we're going to see all throughout the Gospel of John. He's already said, I am the bread of life. Here's the second one, I am the light of the world. But he said these things, look back at verse 20. He said these things as he taught in the temple in a place called the treasury. So the the place where he's teaching is the treasury, which is part of the temple complex. The time when he's preaching is the Feast of Booths. Now this other historical, this Jewish document called the Mishnah, which tells us about life in Jerusalem around the time of Jesus and before that, There's a whole chapter in this other historical document that gives us information about what they did during the Feast of Booths. There's this whole water ceremony, hence Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, come to me and drink. But this is what the Mishnah says was happening in the treasury. Take a look at this. And four golden candelabras were there in the treasury. And four golden basins at their heads. And four ladders 
to each one. So you got these massive candelabras, four of them. And not just a little place to put a little candle. It's a basin that was going to get filled with oil. And it's so big, four ladders to each one. So picture how big these candelabras are. You had to climb up a ladder just to fill it with oil and light it up. And then it says, And there was not a courtyard in Jerusalem that was not illuminated by the light of the place. All the people made pilgrimage to Jerusalem. They set up these booths, these tabernacles. And then lit up all night by these four massive candelabras in the treasury, in the outer court of the temple. You had these massive lights. The whole city was lit up. Jesus goes to that very place during the Feast of Booths. Standing in the very area where these massive candelabras are. Maybe there's people climbing up the ladders right now to fill it up with oil to get ready to let the light shine that night. And Jesus stands in that very place and says, I am the light of the world. You see how the city is being lit up by these four candelabras? I've come to light up the whole world. Here's the amazing thing about Jesus in being the light. Listen, when we're in darkness, darkness is really a symbol for two things, for corruption and for confusion. Darkness, bad things happen in the dark, right? No one commits adultery in broad daylight. No, no, one, no one does a break and enter in, 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 in broad daylight. A crim, crime happens. Sin happens behind closed doors in the dark. Jesus says, I'm the light. Stop walking in darkness. Stop walking in your sin. But, but darkness is also not just corruption. It's also confusion. When we're in the dark, we don't know where we're going. We stumble around. We can't see our way. And Jesus said, I've come to deal, with, to deal with your corruption and to deal with your confusion. I am the light of the world. I joke about always quoting C.S. Lewis. Here's my C.S. Lewis quote for the week. C.S. Lewis said, I believe in Christianity in the same way that I believe that the sun has risen. Sun, S-U-N. Not because I only see the sun, but by it I see everything else. We know the sun came up today, not just because hardly any of us probably even looked at the sun today, and don't look at it for too long, but we saw trees, we saw our driveway, we, we, we saw our house, we saw our neighbors. Jesus is the light of the world. Here's the thing, when you understand Jesus, you understand everything. When you start to see the light of the world, that's when, that's when life begins to make sense. That's when relationships begin to make sense. That's when parenting makes sense. That's when marriage makes sense. That's when, that's when hardship and suffering makes sense. Everything makes sense when we see Jesus as the light of the world. This is what he wants us to know about him. He's come to be the light of the world. Verse 21, let's continue to let Jesus tell us about who he is. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where I'm going, you cannot come? This is the second time that Jesus has said, I'm going somewhere, you can't come. At the end of John 7, he said that. And they're the word, where are you going out to the, to the diaspora? Are you going out to Eastern Europe? That's not what he meant. And now, though, what, are you going to kill yourself? Jesus wasn't talking about suicide. He was talking about sacrifice. He's talking about going to the cross. Then he says something in verse 23. He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. 
I am not of this world. That's the second thing Jesus wants us to know about himself. If we're going to let Jesus talk about Jesus, make note of this. Jesus says, I am not of this world. Reza Aslan can assert all he wants that Jesus didn't say that he was God or believe that he was God. Well, what, what does Jesus mean here when he says, I'm not from this world? We can say all that we want, that Jesus was just another normal human being who happened to be a little bit more enlightened like Deepak Chopra, but Jesus says he's not from here. Forget Galilee or Bethlehem. Jesus says, I'm not even from this planet. It's not normal to say that kind of thing. And we have to take Jesus' words very seriously. He says, I'm not of this world. This is why... The Pharisees were saying, are you so deceived? They thought Jesus has to be lying. He's got to be delusional. You you can't just make up what you want about Jesus because he said crazy stuff like this. Either it's true or it's not. There's no tiptoeing around it. He says he's not from this world. Verse 24, I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Again, so much for pluralistic Jesus. So much for live however you want, everyone's accepted. Listen, Jesus is very accepting, but it's acceptance on his terms. Jesus meets you right where you are. He meets you right where you are, but then he says to you, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He doesn't meet you where you are and say, go find your own path. He meets us in our thirst and he says, I am water. He meets us in our hunger and he says, I am bread. Jesus is accepting, but not in the way our world talks about religious pluralism today. Jesus says, no, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. There is a heaven, there is a hell. The way to heaven is to believe that Jesus is who he said he is. He says, I am the light of the world and I'm not of this world. And then lastly, he said, I am he. I am he. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. In verse 24. Now look at verse 25. They said to him, who are you? That's interesting. Why do they still not know who Jesus is and what he means? Well, what Jesus had just said, I am he... The English translators add the word he there to try to smooth out the awkward grammar. Because what Jesus said actually doesn't make any sense. Because what Jesus actually said was, unless you believe I am, you will die in your sins. And so that's why they're like, who are you? Finish your sentence. You need that, that clause, it needs to terminate on something. You can't just leave I am hanging You are what? You are who? Because, Jesus, we know that you're intelligent. I mean, that's been established. So you're not just going to make a grammatical error here. So what do you mean when you say, I am? Because either that's grammatically awkward, or Jesus, you're saying something far more significant. Because that phrase, I am, being sort of left hanging there, has been used before. It was used at the burning bush when God appeared to Moses. And Moses is like, well, who should, I, who should I say sent me? And God said, tell them I am sent you. Jesus was saying that he was God. That he was the great I am. So they give him the benefit of the doubt. You, 
you didn't mean to say that. So who are you? I am what? I am, I am who? Jesus replies, middle of verse 25, Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge. So much for Jesus not being a judge. But he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. Lifted up is a technical term for crucifying someone. When the person is lifted up on the cross... He said, when the Son of Man, which is referring to Daniel 7, we talked about this when we talked about John chapter 2, it's a term to describe not, not necessarily this, the humanity of Jesus, that's part of it, but it's also demonstrating the, the divinity of Jesus. It's this being who appears before God and in Daniel 7 is given authority not to reign temporarily as a man, but to reign for all of eternity over the whole world. Jesus says, the Son of Man, the one who's going to reign over the whole world, is going to be lifted up. On a cross, and he says, When that happens, verse 28, you will know that I am he. And he did it again. The he's not there in the Greek, it's been added in, in English. Then you will know that I am he. Then you will know that I'm God. That I am the I am that I am. I'm the burning bush appearance of the only true God. And he says, and I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father has taught me. There's submission even within the, the Trinity, Father and Son. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And as he was saying these things, many believed in him. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? What does it mean to actually have a right opinion about him? Some of us would probably summarize it something along the lines of this. If someone said, hey, what do you believe about Jesus? So we know what Deepak Chopra thinks. What do you think? And hopefully you would take them to the Bible. And you'd probably summarize something, maybe not in these words exactly, but you'd probably say something like this. He came from heaven. He's God. And he lived a sinless life. And he died on a cross as our substitute and that we must believe in him, right? That, that if you were to sum up, just in general terms, what is the right opinion about Jesus? What did Jesus actually say about himself, right? That's how we would summarize it. And everything that's summarized right here is found in this passage. Not necessarily in this order, but look, he, he came from heaven. John 8, 23. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world world. He lived a sinless life. I always do the things that are pleasing to him. He died on a cross when you've lifted up the son of man. We must believe in him. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. This is the, this is the right opinion about Jesus. Jesus said, I am he. I'm the light of the world. I am not of this world. And I am he. And when he was saying, I am he, he was declaring. Now, the Pharisees gave him the benefit of the doubt initially. Would you? Who are you? What do you mean by that? The first time he said, I am. Then he says, I am again. And then as the chapter goes on, they start talking about Abraham. And Jesus says, before Abraham was, 
I am. And there is stone throwing attempts in John chapter 8. Not the woman caught in adultery. But when Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, they all pick up stones to stone him. Why? Because they knew he was, they thought he was committing blasphemy as a mere man claiming to be God. There's a lot of opinions about Jesus. We need to know what Jesus' opinion about Jesus is. And Jesus made it clear that he is God. We need to take him at his word. We need, to, we need to believe what he says about himself. Let's bow our heads together and pray. Our Heavenly Father, this passage gives us a lot for us to think about. And Lord, you love us too much just to simply let us off the hook as casual agnostics and say, oh no, I mean, it could be this, it could be that. Lord, you have, you have laid it out there. Your son made it very clear that unless we believe in him, that we will die in our sins. Unless we believe that Jesus died in our place, that he died for our sins so that we would not die in our sins. God, we thank you for the power of the gospel, that Jesus did come from heaven, that he did live a sinless life, that he did die on the cross for us, and that he has invited us to believe in him so that we would not be punished with the death that we deserve for our sin, but that we would be invited into the gift of eternal life. Lord, we pray that you would impress these truths on our hearts and minds now. In Jesus' name, amen.